Welcome to Orange Crest Community Church and OCCathome.com. We are so glad you're here. At OCC, our mission is to invite people to take their next steps with Jesus. And so we pray that through our time together, you're encouraged and challenged to move forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Hi, my name is Larry. I'm an engineer. Graduated from a long time ago in mechanical engineering, worked for Boeing, McDonnell Douglas uh, as an engineer for 17 years. Then my wife and I and my family uh, were called to move overseas. We served in Thailand for 15 years as missionaries. Uh, We then retired from that about five years ago, moved here, and am now uh, teaching at Cal Baptist in the uh, College of Engineering. And as an engineer, I like to ask my I ask the, I like to ask the question why. I never settle for just what. I always like to ask the question why. And I want to set a little bit of the expectations for this uh, for this talk because um, I don't want you guys to be disappointed or expect something you're not going to get. So I'm a teacher at heart. I just I like to teach, but I prefer to convey principles. I typically don't give recipes or lists of what to do because I believe everybody's life and circumstances are unique and that. Um, and that truth um, gets applied in a lot of different ways. So I try to throw out principles so that you can take those principles and apply them in a way that fits you and, and the circumstances you're in. So that's really what I'm going to focus in on today. I don't want to limit what God might want to do in anyone's life. And uh, if you're hoping to get a set of recipes or get a recipe or a, a step-by-step set of instructions, then you might be a little bit disappointed. But by the end, I hope you'll see that, that even Jesus was a little bit vague in the overall strategy that he left with his disciples. And so as I start, I just want to pray, mostly for me, but also for you. And um, God's outside of time, so even though this is recorded, I, I know that he hears the prayer in the context of wherever this is being played back. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to share the things you've placed in my heart. I pray, God, that you would um, speak by your spirit, that you would give me the words to say that would honor you and fulfill your purposes, and that as those words go out, that you would use your spirit in the life of whoever may be listening, so that, Lord, it would reinforce and solidify truths that you are trying to um, incorporate into their lives so that we can all, all become the people you designed us to be. Um, both um, um, now and and well into the future, and that we would lay some foundations in this time that that would that would help us for for the duration of our lives. And we ask all these things that your name would be honored, and we ask them in Jesus' name, Amen. So, over the past five weeks as a church, we've been looking at life's pursuits, the quest that we're engaged in. Now, Scott got us going by helping us realize that hey. There's a compass out there, and that compass may be more like Jack Sparrow's compass than a true compass and, and in the sense that it just kind of points at what we want it to point at, and that could be problematic. And then Cody helped us evaluate the value of the goal. What should our goal be, in, and how much is really enough? Um, and then John and Taylor evaluated specific goals that kind of creep in, uh, i.e. the quest for ease, the quest for legacy, uh, which could also be personal glory. And, and these kind of things can undermine the things that are truly important, and they kind of gave us alternatives to those that we should pursue instead. Um, better destinations for us to consider. And then last week, Daniel got to a root issue that often undermines the journey, and that issue was the whole issue of uh, 
of pride. And I'll actually even talk a little bit about that today, but it was excellent what we've come so far. And, I, and today I want to step back and I want to take a big picture look at the overall journey. How do we confirm that this compass that we got isn't a Jack Sparrow compass, that it's really going to help us get where we want to end up? And how do we know which direction to go? I mean, there's lots of places. Are they all equally good? Should we all be doing the same thing? Um, is there a recipe that we should all be following? How do we make sure that we have safeguards in place that, to, that protect us from those hidden land giant, landmines that John and Taylor and Daniel warned us about? And what needs to be in place to help us make sure that we're going to get to that destination that we were designed to reach? I call this um, the quest compass calibration. Um, we're going to calibrate our compass, prepare for, and hopefully set ourselves up so that we can complete the journey. Now, I don't know if you have uh, ever done this or seen people that do it where they take their phone, you know, they, they, they need to use their map, and, and then you, they're standing out in the middle of nowhere, and they're waving their phone around in a giant big figure eight because their phone needs to be um, stabilized. It needs to be calibrated so that it actually gives them the right result. And um, if we don't calibrate our phones at some point, then they may not work right. They may take us to the wrong destination. The verb calibrate actually is defined by Webster's to say to adjust so it can be used in an accurate and an exact way. So we want to talk about what it looks like to calibrate the compass that guides our life. How do we make sure that the compass that guides our life is calibrated and is something that we can rely on to take us in the right direction? And to do this, I want to look at how Jesus confirmed that his compass was calibrated and how that affected his life, and then subsequently how that affected and impacted the lives of those that he, um, that he took um, responsibility for, the disciples. So, to do this, we're going to go back to the beginning. And in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, one of the first things he did was get baptized by John the Baptist. And then right after that, right after that, um, Jesus' introduction to the world through baptism, he, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Um, we're going to look at Matthew 4, and, and I'm going to start with verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, which Jesus was, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him along the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and on their hands they will lift you up, so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him along to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, go away, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to serve him. Now, this was something that... Uh, that really I could not identify with for pretty much the, most of my life. 
Um, for the longest time, I'm thinking, what are these temptations and how do they relate to me? And I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one that struggles to identify with taking stones and making them into bread or, or standing on the top of a temple and throwing myself off so that angels can catch me or, or being offered all the nations of the world if I bow down to Satan. And I'm thinking these are, these sound like pretty good temptations for the Son of God, but maybe not something that I can relate to or, or really understand. But then there's this verse, Hebrews 4.15, that says Jesus was tempted in the same way that we are. And so I was, is that really true? Are Jesus' temptations and our temptations similar or, or not? And then this all changed for me about 10 years ago when I saw the temptations in a new light. So I want to go back and look at them in a little bit more detail. Okay, so let's start with this first temptation. Jesus was led by the spirit of the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted, he didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. He became hungry. Um, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, now his needs are legitimate. If you haven't eaten for 40 days, that's real hunger. I, I cannot say that I have ever fasted for 40 days. I can only imagine how hungry you might be. And, and if you're looking on the scale of wants, desires, and needs, hunger has got to be way up there on the need scale. I mean, this is as legitimate as it gets in terms of needs. And Satan's coming to him saying, hey, you have a legitimate need. And, and Jesus is the son of God. He has the ability, the power to turn stones into bread. And there's plenty of stones around. There's plenty of resources. What's the problem with making bread? Why is this bad? Why would this be a temptation? Um, and, and making bread's not bad in and of itself because, you know, just a few chapters later and in the other Gospels, you read about Jesus making bread for 5,000 people and, and glorifying God by showing the power of God in feeding them. So what is Jesus being tempted with? And, and why is this such a bad thing. What, what's, what's really going on? Well, his response gives us a clue. His response is, he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, what was Jesus being tempted to do? He was being tempted to take control by using resources at his disposal, his power, stones around him to meet his own very real, very legitimate needs outside of God the Father's timetable. Jesus had the power. He had the resources. But when Satan said, you know, take care of yourself, you, you shouldn't be hungry. You have the power. You have the ability. Take care of yourself. Jesus refused to use that power and those resources to meet his own needs. Why? Well, there's nothing wrong with making bread, um, obviously, because later on Jesus does that, and that's not a problem. So the only possible reason that Jesus might refuse to make bread is to honor a request that was made by the Father. And this was needed to set the stage for the life that Jesus lived, the example that he set for us. Now, I want to talk about the life that Jesus lived, and the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to give you a real quick, hopefully quick, overview of the whole book of John, which I actually love. And, and I'm only going to go into depth into a couple of parts of it, but I want to give you a quick overview of the book of John because I feel like the whole book of John has a theme that's related to this. So the book of John can be summarized as four parts. 
The life that Jesus lived is John 1 through John 12. His birth, um, uh, teaching the disciples, growing up, healing people, feeding people, um, doing all kinds of incredible things, walking on the water. This is John 1 through 12, the life that Jesus lived. Um, And then there's this final charge that he gives to the disciples, the Last Supper, or also known as the Farewell Discourse. This is John 13 through 17. So the first 12 verses are the life. This, this next four chapters, excuse me, the first four, 12 chapters are the life of Jesus. The next four chapters are this farewell discourse. And then, um, and, and at the farewell discourse, at the Last Supper, Jesus just washes the feet of the disciples. They eat bread. They break bread together. And then actually part of that is going out into the Garden of Gethsemane and praying. And then there's Jesus' ultimate obedience to the Father, which is his arrest, his uh, trials, his crucifixion, and ultimately the resurrection. And that's John 18 through 20. And then you've got John 21, which is essentially an epilogue. There's the whole book of John. Okay, so let's go back and look at those first four, first 12 chapters, because I want to talk about the life of Jesus from a very big picture perspective. In the book of John, um, Jesus's life is described as a life that is completely under the direction of God the Father. In John 5, 19 and 20, Jesus said this, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Wait a minute, isn't this the Son of God? Doesn't he have divine power? Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Later on in John 6:38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then John 8:28, so Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things as the Father taught me. Do you hear the theme here? And then John 12:49, for I did not speak on my own initiative. But the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Now, these 12 chapters describe a life that in which everything that was done was done under the direction of the Father. Nothing Nothing was done at Jesus' own personal will. He chose not to be the boss of his human life. He chose not to take control. And instead, he lived a life of complete obedience to the Father. And, and God the Father, because of that obedience, God the Father did miraculous things through him. Amazing things. Raising of the dead, walking on water, feeding 5,000, um, miracle after miracle. And then... And then, at the, end of his, at the end of his time on earth, he gathers his disciples, and then he goes into the Last Supper. Now, I want to talk about the Last Supper because this is the last time when Jesus has all of the disciples together. And it's kind of like him saying, hey, I'm getting ready to go, and, 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 and the game's going to start, and you're going to have to go on, and I can't be in the game with you. And and he's going to give them his strategy. He's going to tell them what they need to do to succeed. So let's look at that real quickly. John 13 is the first part of Jesus' strategy for his followers. Now, 
I'm going to quickly go through John 13. I would love to do a whole sermon on John 13. There's an incredible wealth of, of cool stuff in this chapter. Um, it starts with Jesus washing the disciples' feet and his betrayal. Those two things alone you could talk about for a long time. And then Jesus is alone with the 11 for the final time. Judas is left, and Jesus is alone with the 11 that are left. And this is his last time to really sit down and talk with them and prepare them for what's coming. Now, what's coming? He's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. He's going to rise from the dead, and then he's going to go to be with the Father. And then they're going to be charged with 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 uh, propagating the church throughout the whole world. So how does Jesus prepare them for that task? So I want to look at John 13. Therefore, when Jesus, when when Judas, excuse me, John 13:31. I'm going to start in verse 31. Therefore, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, "Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him immediately." Little children. I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men um, will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, This is the first part of Jesus' strategy. This is how we're supposed to be known. How we love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And and like I said, I would love to talk about that for a long time, another time. Um, Bottom line is this. You should be asking yourself several questions about this. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you? What's new? And, and, and how, how is it that we should be known by how we love one another? Because I think a lot of people in the church think we should be known by our uh, theology or by our morality or by the things that we choose to agree on or believe in or feel like everyone should be doing instead of being known for actually how we relate to one another. But let's move on. Now, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. So Jesus reiterates this. He says, basically, I am going and you can't come. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you now. Now, I want to clarify something here. Peter's not really saying I will lay down my life for you. What Peter's really saying here is, please don't leave me. <laughs> That's really what he's saying. And, and Jesus answered, now, hey, Peter, I know you think that. It's not really true. Will you really lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster's not going to crow until you deny me three times. And, and, and Jesus knows this, and it's okay, because that's not the main point. Um, the disciples are frightened. Jesus knows that. They can't do what Jesus did. How could they possibly go on without him? How could they possibly go out and do things apart from him? They left everything to follow him, and now he's going to leave them. What are they going to do? And so Jesus needs to give them something to help them become calm. John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's okay. Believe in God and believe also in me. Have faith. I'm going to skip verse 2. I mean, we just don't have time to go through all these verses. It's incredibly rich. Verse 4, and you know the way where I am going. And then Thomas says to him, Lord, 
We do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? That's a legitimate question. Uh, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, I want to highlight something here. When I was in seminary, and I, took, I went to seminary in the 90s, got a degree in theology, and most of it I've forgotten. So, you know, but there was one class. A professor got up and said this, and I've never forgotten what he said. He said, Jesus did not say, I know the way. If he had said that, then that would mean that the way, the truth or the life, are knowledge that can be passed on and made available without being in relationship with him. Instead, Jesus said, I am the way. The only way to know the way is to know him. Jesus was inviting them to the same type of relationship that he had lived out in front of them with his father for all of the book of John, John 1 through John 12. A life completely dependent and in complete relationship and and utterly listening to and obeying God the Father. Jesus was inviting them to that same kind of relationship with him. And he said, you know the way because you know me. Now, the second part of Jesus' strategy is to remove the fear, instill confidence, and provide direction by invoking a new kind of relationship. Because they've been with him physically. Jesus is saying, we're going to do things a little bit differently. And this relationship is one they've seen him live out. So that it's not something that's new to them. It's something they've seen. They just didn't realize that they had seen it. The disciples don't have to be afraid. They already know everything they need to know. They have everything they need. They just don't realize it. The key verse is verse 4. You know the way. How? How do they know the way? Because they have watched Jesus live his life. The first 12 chapters of the book of John document how Jesus lived. A life utterly dependent on the Father. Um, And then... Jesus says this in John 14, 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. So Jesus is basically saying, you have the same type of relationship, the same type of of access to the Father that I have had. You too can hear what he says, do it, and see these miraculous things happen. Now, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. That would be enough. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Verse 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, when Jesus says truly, truly, stand up and pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. What? We're going to do what Jesus did if we just believe in him and even greater works? How can we do even greater works? How is that possible? Now, Jesus had two names. You might have heard both, Son of God and Son of Man. And as the Son of God, he had unlimited power, unlimited knowledge, but he lived on earth as the Son of Man. And I would submit to you, 
I believe that Jesus, as the Son of Man, chose to set aside all of that divine power in the context of his life on earth. And, and what Daniel referred to last week in Philippians 2, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, emptied himself by becoming obedient. Humility flows from obedience so that his life would be an example that we could imitate. You see, if Jesus had been using his divine power to accomplish the things God had told him to do, he could never say to you and me, hey, follow my example, because we don't have that divine power. We don't have that divine knowledge. But if Jesus lived the perfectly obedient life, and everything he did was done in obedience to the Father, and everything miraculous that happened, happened by the Father's power out of Jesus' obedience, then that is an example that Jesus can point to and say, do that. It works. You've seen it work. You can trust it. And Jesus goes on in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You, you'll, you'll listen and you'll do what I say if you love me. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you. That's kind of the key word about this chapter, abide. He abides with you and will be in you. After a little while, I'm going to skip to verse 19. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you're going to live also. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. All of the knowledge, creativity, resources that God himself has, possesses, available to us, if we are just willing to enter into that kind of a relationship. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me and he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our abode with him. We will come and live with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Do you, do you see the theme repeating again? The same theme from John 1 through 12 again here. It's not Jesus saying what's in Jesus' own heart or mind, but the things which he hears from the Father that he's just passing on. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said. You're not going to have to worry about remembering what I've taught you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. When we have that kind of resource at our disposal in our relationship with Christ, moment by moment, hearing powerful, creative, insightful, wise input into our lives, we can have the kind of peace that others long for. And in the end of John 14, Jesus says this, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. It's about time for Jesus to be arrested. But so the world may know that I love the Father, 
I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let's go from here. Jesus' demonstration of his love for God was in that he would listen and completely obey what the Father told him in the context of that relationship. The second strategy of abiding is intentionally vague because God did not want them, or us for that matter, to have a predefined plan that does not involve coming to him on a daily basis, maybe even more often than that. He doesn't want to give us a recipe. He is inviting us into a relationship. And we go back to the temptation. Satan knows he has to undermine that. So the first temptation is to ignore the relationship and whatever God may be asking Jesus to do and instead focus on himself, his wants, even his needs, to take control using resources that Jesus has readily available to him and to achieve his own purposes rather than to submit to God who really does love him and wants the best for him and knows how to help him maximize his life. And Jesus wants us to know that we can avoid, we need to avoid trying to take that same control. As my wife and I came to understand these things about 10 years ago, we began to realize there were a lot of situations where we were making bread. We were taking resources at our disposal and meeting our own needs outside of God's timetable. Um, we, we realized that we needed to have some accountability with one another and, and And we suddenly identified with this temptation, this first temptation of Jesus. It's something that I'm tempted with every single day. And so every once in a while, my wife will say to me, are we making bread? Are you making bread? And and I have to stop and think, is this something that God wants me to use the resources he's given me to actually pursue or not? It is written, man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It is not a recipe, not a predetermined plan. It is a relationship that is fresh every single day, that is only obtainable, and that is only obtainable if we remain in that relationship. Selah. Stop. Pause. Think about that. Back to Matthew 4. Then Jesus is taken to the top of the temple by Satan. The devil took him along into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you. And on their hands they will lift you up so that you do not strike your foot against the stone. Against the stone. Matthew 4, 5, and 6. What is Jesus being tempted with here? What is it that Satan's trying to get Jesus to do? Again, Jesus knows that God the Father loves him and will do anything to protect him. Most of all, Jesus knows that God has a plan. And that plan does not involve his imminent death. He knows it's three years out. He knows that whatever happens, God's going to make sure he doesn't die now. So hurling himself down would simply provide an opportunity for God to demonstrate his ability to save those he loves. What's wrong with allowing God to demonstrate his incredible saving power? Well, Jesus' response again gives us a clue. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What was Jesus being tempted to do? He was being tempted to put pressure on God to do things outside of the Father's timetable. I call that manipulation. 
Jesus was being tempted to take control, but in a different way, by trying to manipulate God. I started to realize that, hey, there were times when I would try to put God in an awkward position and attempt to force him to bend to my will, rather than being willing to patiently endure whatever God may be taking me through. I began to realize that I, too, was tempted, maybe daily, to manipulate God. Stop. Think about that. Finally, the third temptation. The devil took him along to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. By the way, these are all things promised to the Messiah. Jesus knows they are things that rightly belong to him. The nations belong to the Christ. And Satan said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So what's Jesus being tempted with here? Well, once again, Jesus' response gives us a clue. Jesus said to him, go away, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels did come and begin to serve him. Jesus was once again being tempted to take control, but this was still another way. He was tempted to take control, to get what was promised to him, what rightfully belonged to him, but to do that by taking a shortcut, by going to something other than God. When there's something that we believe belongs to us, something we are promised, maybe even by God, and we have to wait, be patient, then there's that, then there's that constant temptation to take a shortcut or an easier path and to go to something other than God to get it. Stop. Pause. Think about that. Once I realized how Jesus was actually being tempted, I realized that I faced those same temptations every single day. I could suddenly identify and appreciate the need to learn from how Jesus dealt with those temptations. I needed to cultivate my relationship with God, to abide, to not live by bread alone, to listen and obey, rather than looking for a recipe, recipe, rather than trying to trick God into doing what I want him to do, rather than abandoning that relationship entirely and looking for a shortcut or an easy way out. So when we get into these situations where we're called to be in a relationship with God and then he starts telling us what to do, what happens when I've disregarded that? What about those times when I messed up and I I didn't listen or I chose not to obey? Am I already too far gone? One of the things I would tell you is this. When we fall, which we all have done, Satan likes to point out where we might be or what we might have achieved if we hadn't fallen. He's trying to keep you down. Instead, God always deals with us where we're at, not where we could be. Remember Jesus and Peter at the supper? Jesus didn't pretend Peter wasn't going to deny him. God deals with us where we're at. He sees us down on the ground. He says, hey, you've skinned your knee. You're not running Let's get you fixed up. Let's get you up. Let's get you walking. Maybe not running quite yet. And let's go from here. God deals with us where we're at. You don't have to worry about him coming to you and chewing you out because you're not farther down the road. But what about those times when I really long to hear what God's saying, but I don't seem to be hearing anything at all? 
Before we went overseas, my wife and I were members at a church, and one of the sayings we had at that church was, light received brings more light. Light rejected brings darkness. If we've stopped hearing God, then maybe, just maybe, we need to go back to the last thing we did hear him say. Sometimes God is speaking, but we we didn't pay attention, we didn't want to hear it, we didn't listen, and so then God sits patiently and waits for us to respond. He's polite. He's a gentleman. If we go back and say, okay, what was that last thing I heard from God? If you go back and deal with that, then maybe you can start then hearing and obeying again and starting to see that incredible um, power in your life. But then, hey, the main reason we struggle to hear God and listen and obey is he tells us to do hard things. What happens when God asks us to do hard or scary things? This is what I think church should be. This is what I think we should be doing when we gather here, when we gather in our small groups, when you have your men's breakfasts, your women's breakfasts. This is what it's all about. Encourage one another every day. Encourage means to give courage. It took me until I was like 45 to suddenly realize that the word encourage, the root of that is courage. Encourage, give courage to one another every day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews 3.13. Church is supposed to be a place where we come together and we say, this is what God's telling me to do. It's scaring the living daylights out of me. Help me do it so that I can truly see the power of God in my life and fulfill all the things he has for me and, and maximize, be the best that I was designed to be. So let's talk about what's next. What next steps can we take? I absolutely love our church's mission statement, helping people find their next steps with Jesus. And the, my favorite word in that is the there. <laughs> because everyone's next step with Jesus is a little bit different. And, and it's all dictated by what is God saying to each person. So the key to you really being able to apply this in your life isn't a set of instructions. It's, are you in a right relationship with God? If you have no relationship with God whatsoever, let me assure you, God wants you to be the best version of you more than you do. And he wants to help you get there. And, and he is more than willing to, to come into your life and help lead you to that point, to, to let you tap into all his wisdom and creativity and power to become that person. But you have to come to him and willingly submit and say, I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to let you speak into my life and, and, and then allow that then, allow him to come into your life and direct you. He wants to do that. He longs to do that. He's begging people to allow him to do that. If you're not at a point where you're cultivating that relationship with God so that you have that potential, then what do you need to do to get where you can get those ears open and hear those things so that you can start to apply them? You may be a Christian and you're struggling to hear God, maybe because you've fallen out of practice. Where do you need to go back to? What was the last thing you heard God say? And then how can you pick up from that point and start listening right now, letting God pick you up from where you are right now and get you walking again so that you can start to run? Maybe you're a Christian and, and, and you realize, I've been making bread. I've been using resources entrusted to me just to take care of myself because the world's telling me if I don't take care of myself, nobody will. And so 
I've taken the resources, the power, the skills, whatever it is that God has given to me, and I just use them for my own selfish purposes. Maybe we need, you need to rethink that. And if you want to have somebody sit down and talk through, how can you take that and, and, and submit it to God's purposes to become the person he designed you to be, then, then this is the place to do that. Because this place has a mission, a purpose to help you find your next step with Jesus. Maybe your next step needs to be thinking through when you're impatient and, 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 and realizing that You've allowed selfish desires and lack of patience to cause you to try to take control and manipulate God, to force his hand. And, um, and where you've tried to get him to do something other than what he wanted to do. And, then, and, and possibly gotten yourself into trouble because, take it from me, God really can't be manipulated. When you try that, which the only real answer to that is to come back to God and say, I'm sorry. I, I was really wrong of me to manipulate you. Ask him to forgive you and instead ask him, what is it that you want me to do? And seek to live by whatever word he gives you. And if you're struggling to hear God, ask him to help you go back and see if there's a point where, where you chose to abandon that relationship. Maybe to even go and seek to get your own needs or wants or desires met by something other than God. And then go back and say, I, I want to turn away from those things and instead come to the creator of the universe who longs to have that relationship with you and get up and start walking again. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you give us incredible, incredible um, resources through our relationship with you. I thank you that you are there for us day by day always wanting to help us step by step to get where you want us to be and that you want us to be the best version of ourselves even more than we do. Lord, I pray that you will help us to embrace that relationship at every turn and to always seek to hear what you're saying, to avoid making bread, instead to obey what you tell us, even though it may be hard, even though it may be difficult. pray you would help us as a church body to help one another when those when those choices are hard to make, that we would give one another the courage and the strength to actually follow through. And Lord, I pray you would protect us from trying to manipulate you or even going to something other than you to fall into idolatry. And, and, and Lord, get a cheap imitation of what you really want for our lives. Instead, Lord, help us to really find exactly what it is that you have for us so that we can become that person. You made us to be. I pray your blessing on the people that are listening. Grant that we might all be who you made us to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at occathome.com to learn more about how to connect with us. And join us again next week for another Orange Crest Community Church podcast. Have a great day.